Is Israel's war on Hamas really about removing Palestinians from a region rich in natural gas? Is the description of Hamas being like the group ISIS a mischaracterization in mainstream media? Will Hezbollah in Lebanon join the fight against Israel? Are Israel and its big brother, the United States, going to prevail in the war or go down to defeat? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as the genocidal intentions of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is being made clear following the Hamas attack on Israel and as deaths of Palestinians in Gaza is piling up to close to 10,000, we spend another week analyzing the situation with an emphasis on whether or not this pivotal moment will spread beyond Gaza. In part one of our interview, we are joined by the geopolitical analyst and author Mahdi Nazamroya, who gives us his take on the plan, based on past statements, and on where this conflict may be headed. Near the end, we are joined by activist, lawyer, and journalist Dimitri Lascaris, who shares his own thoughts and analysis following his recent trip to Lebanon, where he saw the energies of the people in the streets and the Israeli soldiers minding the store on the north side. On this week's program, Israel's 9-11 Part 3, Yanan, Natural Gas, and the Prospect of a Regional Armageddon. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 3rd, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. European settlers gained access to the land through the doctrine of discovery, broken promises, and other tactics resulting in the colonization of the people who lived here. The descendants need to pay reparations for the damage done to the indigenous people and proceed forward in a respectful partnership. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The conclusion is then indefatigably clear. Quote, so Putin went to war to prevent NATO, more NATO, close to his borders, unquote. In such statements, the lines between explanation, justification, and willful blindness are not always demarcated. But here we have a stunning confession that should be minted in every historical overview of a calamitous conflict that may eventually result in some form or rather in the very same de facto arrangements Putin demanded in 2021. Russia will have to contend with its own problems and nightmares regarding the Ukraine war 
but as such, Stoltenberg, NATO, and the U.S. Imperium deserve a withering stare from history's muse. That comes from the article, NATO provoked Putin. Stoltenberg comes clean on the Ukraine war. Quote, the war started in 2014, unquote. By Dr. Binoy Kampmark and Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted November 1st. The war escalation in the Middle East does not stop. The killing increases almost exponentially to the point of no return, meaning that the threshold of quote-unquote beyond salvation has been crossed. Food and water deliveries, partial reinstatement of communication do not make a difference anymore. The infrastructure to cook, to distribute food and water, to attend to the wounded, to communicate, even to bury the death, has been destroyed. The Israeli, especially Netanyahu, and of course his Western allies, the U.S. and Europe, know that very well. That comes from the article, Gaza, don't let them get away with it. Quote, war escalation in the Middle East does not stop, unquote. By Peter Koenig, posted November 1st. The leaked document was quickly dismissed as speculative, but in fact, Israel has had just such an ethnic cleansing plan for Gaza on the drawing board approved by the United States since at least 2007. That was shortly after Hamas won Palestinian elections and took control of the enclave. After a series of failed secret diplomatic efforts, over the past 16 years to arm-twist Egypt into accepting this so-called, quote, peace plan, unquote, known officially as the Greater Gaza Plan, Israel may be tempted to exploit the current moment to implement a much crueler version of it by force. That would certainly explain Israel's current devastating bombing campaign in Gaza, which officials are positively comparing to the horrifying firebombing of civilians in the German city of Dresden in the Second World War, as well as Israel's order to one million Palestinians to ethnically cleanse themselves from northern Gaza. That comes from the article, Israel-Palestine War. Mounting evidence suggests Israel may be ready to cleanse Gaza. By Jonathan Cook, posted November 1st, originally published on Middle East Eye. Obviously, the intent of the IDF and the Pentagon is to kill as many Palestinians as possible while removing the remaining population to neighboring Egypt. Such a strategic plan would involve a military occupation of Gaza once again. This occupation would be reinforced by the U.S. military presence inland and in the eastern Mediterranean. Consequently, it is not surprising that the Biden administration wants to expand the number of Pentagon troops in the region. These U.S. troops would theoretically be in a position to confront the inevitable escalation of resistance forces within and outside of Palestine who are committed to ending the presence of Washington and its Israeli client state throughout the region. It comes from the article, White House and Pentagon Directing IDF Genocidal War in Gaza by Abiyomi Azikiwe, posted November 1st. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. crisis in the Middle East is touching people all over the world, and Mahdi Nasimroy is no exception. He contacted me earlier in October out of a need to share some analysis with our listeners, so we thought we should have him on. Mahdi Darius Nazamroy is a sociologist and a research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization. He's an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst and also authored an article on the fall of 2011 uh, on global research entitled Preparing the Chessboard for the Clash of Civilizations, Divide, Conquer, and Rule the New Middle East, which speaks in part to the issues playing out in Israel and Gaza right now. I started the conversation by getting him to give his take on the events playing out over the last month. Uh, one thing I'd like to start off with is you brought up September 11th, or 9-11 as it's colloquial called. Uh, there, People have paralleled this, called this Israel's 9-11. Well, you should, all audience, the audience should remember that the president of the United States, George W. Bush Jr., was very unpopular before 9-11, uh, 9-11. And uh, there was a lot of problems in the United States and all that disappeared. His popularity went up and uh, it was it allowed for this new militarized foreign policy to come into play. Now, the same thing is happening with Israel, although Israel's foreign policy has always been militaristic. And I think it's even a misnomer to call it a foreign policy uh, because it's dealing we're dealing with occupation here. Second point I'd like to bring is. Pardon me, but I'll, I'll use some uh, religious uh, expression. Christmas came early for Benjamin Netanyahu. Mr. Netanyahu, uh, he was under investigation by the Israeli judicial system. There's so much evidence to prove uh, that Mr. Netanyahu was going to be found guilty. Definitely the courts were going to throw the book at him. Uh, his solution to this was to politicize the judicial system of Israel, the state of Israel. So what he was doing is basically he wanted to have control over the judicial system by changing the law and basically the constitutional structure of Israel, rewiring it where the court system, which has always been independent, the judicial branch has been independent from the executive and legislative branches in Israel, the prime minister's office and the Knesset. He wanted to uh, basically subordinate it. This basically resulted in a civil war in Israel. Uh, what do I mean by a civil war? I mean that the country was divided heavily. Uh, it was protest. The rule of law was not being followed. Benjamin Netanyahu started even re-channeling uh, security and military and police assets to Tel Aviv and other major centers against protesters, you know, because the protesters were not letting up. They were getting stronger. He was trying to outlaw them. Uh, so this was the dynamics in Israel. And even the president of Israel on the record said he was afraid there would be a civil war. So what this what happened in Israel with the uh, October 7th actually 
froze this civil war. It put it on ice and it gave Mr. Netanyahu, I think he thought a gift, but in the end, he's going to realize that this is not a gift. It's actually going to hurt him in the end. What he's done, he's made many strategic blunders. He's blamed all the Israeli securities for what's happened. Uh, the second point in regards to this constellation of what I'm talking about that I'd like to make audiences think about, what happened with uh, the Egyptians, I don't want to segue, is they sent intelligence to Netanyahu saying that their Palestinians are in Gaza, Hamas, and other Palestinian resistance fighters, they're going to do something. So a message was sent and even the United States government, the US Congress, Senate Foreign Affairs Committee has testified that this is correct. The Israeli government knew days beforehand that something was going to happen. Now, someone can say they were distracted. Someone can say they underestimated it. And someone can say they looked the other way. It's possible. All these are possibilities. So this was very convenient for Netanyahu. Uh, that's what I'd like to put forward. Of course, there are people who, ha who are conspiratorial minded and they think that maybe Hamas was manipulated into doing this. Maybe the Palestinians were manipulated into doing this. These are all possibilities that can't be ruled out. But I want to talk on sureties, on, on facts that we know. We know that there was problems in Israel for Netanyahu. We knew that he was in legal trouble. We knew his popularity was diving. And we also know that the Israeli economy uh, is not as robust as it was before. The handouts coming from the West, the United States, are still coming, but there's economic problems in the West, and that's also affecting Israel. And the Israelis also had their eyes on the Gaza Strip's territorial waters where there are massive natural gas reserves. So in the Eastern Mediterranean, Cyprus, where there was conflict between the Turks, the Greeks, Cypriots, and even the Israelis over natural gas, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and the Gaza Strip all have large amounts of natural gas. And the Israelis want this, it's specifically Northern Gaza, just to let you know. If you look on a map, you can find the maps. Anybody who wants to in this age of technology can find maps showing the the gas reserves in the Eastern Mediterranean, you'll see Northern Gaza, which the Israelis want evacuated, has a lot of uh, uh, natural gas. So um, did Hamas give them moral grounds to do this? Absolutely not. I disagree. First of all, I want to point out that uh, Hamas uh, is being typecast in the wrong way. Uh, in many ways, uh, the situation is misrepresented. First of all, Hamas is a resistance group that is not solely a militia. It is a political party as well. It has a militia branch. The militia branch, the militants, the resistance fighters, or as the Israelis call them and the Canadian government terrorists, uh, they were the ones who launched this as a joint Palestinian operation. It was not just Hamas. It was different Palestinian resistance groups. They released a letter about it when they did it. And they did not expect it to be so easy. Um, why are, I don't I cannot say why it was so easy. Maybe it's because the resources weren't there. Maybe it's because uh, uh, Israel is not as strong as people think. 
maybe that they planned this so well, uh, but the resistance, the, the Israeli defenses fell immediately. So much so it's that it's civilians it's from Gaza were even crossed. Just interruptively, what you're saying is it doesn't matter. I mean, they, they might have had foreign knowledge or they may not. But either way, I guess Netanyahu was kind of, you know, rubbing his hands together saying, OK, this is our opportunity. Exactly. I mean, that, that's you hit the nail right on the head. So this was opportunistic. So this is the parallel with September 11th. The United States used this as an excuse to invade Afghanistan, geostrategically very important placement between Pakistan, India, Iran, China, and the former Soviet Union. Uh, it used this to invade Iraq, to steal Iraq's oil. It used this as an excuse to go into other countries in the uh, region that we call the Middle East, longest serving prime minister of Israel. So he, he, he yeah, he basically, Christmas came early for him. And... Um, he, he, he used this opportunity to justify what is undoubtedly uh, a genocidal attack on a predominantly civil, like n almost all these people are civilian. You can't, we cannot forget that the Gaza Strip is the most densely populated place on the earth, that the Gaza Strip is, is the distance in the Gaza Strip is less than the distance of a marathon. People who run the Boston Marathon run a longer distance than the the entire length of the Gaza Strip, all right? So you can run the Boston Marathon and that's a longer distance of land than the Gaza Strip. That's just to put it into comparison. Um, and the majority of people there are children. 2.3 million people in that space. 2.3 million prisoners, essentially. It has been called by Jimmy Carter, former US president, a man who supported Israel. He had, He basically, said it was an open-air prison. Many Israelis themselves say that. Uh, the United Nations says that. How many people and how many uh, qualified people have to say this for those people uh, uh, in the rest of the world who disagree and support Israel to see that this is an open-air prison and it's unacceptable uh, to do that? And this is not a defensive war. This is not a war. First of all, the language, as a sociologist, uh, as a sociologist who studies power, who has throughout his life uh, studied power dynamics and how language is used to uh, to use to exercise power relationships and to show them and to to uh, uh, instruct people, uh, I can tell you that it's not a war, and legally it's not a war. It's an occupation. And there's a resistance to an occupation. Nobody would say anything about the uh, Chinese in Nanjing who resisted the Japanese attacks on Nanjing. Nobody would say anything about the French resistance. Now, the French resistance did some really bad things to Nazi so German soldiers. All right. Uh, people do bad things in war. And I'm not here to justify them. I actually morally think that one civilian getting killed is unjustifiable. So. Uh, it, uh, that said, Hamas has been smeared. How do I believe Hamas has been smeared? I can tell you from the first days they said they beheaded people. There was absolutely no evidence and this type of nonsense uh, or propaganda has been used many times. Then they talked about rape. Um, I highly doubt that uh, there was rape. It's possible that, uh, but that would not be the trend. Like, I mean, there was no... 
uh, I don't believe that uh, they there was massive rape and people were intentionally raping. I, I believe that there was an attack, and I believe that the the light of the events will come to become clearer over time of exactly what happened. There still is this fog of war over what happened. So when I heard about children being beheaded and uh, 40 children being beheaded, I knew immediately that's not true. The reason I knew it's not true, uh, one of the reasons I knew it's not true is because there's a history of Israel and the United States using these type of statements uh, and then retracting them or forgetting about them and just using it to rile people up, to work up people's emotions. So they said 40 kids and now everybody, all these politicians started talking about beheaded kids, beheaded kids. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Ben Shapiro started saying 40 kids, 40 kids. And then when he was asked to provide evidence, he brought a, a picture that later experts said used AI, like, and it was just one kid and nobody, third party, nobody in a position of authority even authenticated it. The Israeli president started presenting Al-Qaeda booklets. I don't know if you're aware, he, he did a press conference and he said this Al-Qaeda booklet was found amongst Hamas fighters. He expects us to believe Hamas fighters within an hour were planning on building chemical weapons and they're using a manual in English. The front of the manual is says Al-Qaeda in English. That was clearly meant for a foreign audience. That no Hamas fighter would have a paper manual that says Al-Qaeda. It would use the Arabic language with swiggly writing. The script wouldn't be uh, Latin and in, the language wouldn't be English. I mean, I, I'm reminded of the 1991 Persian Gulf War where they took the, 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 the nurses uh, talking about a, a incubator baby being thrown on the floor by Iraq. Exactly. Exactly. A, a PR company. She was, she was trained by... Uh, Nolan's a PR company. Uh, she was pretending to be a nurse, but she was really the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter. She gave a false testimony to the U.S. Congress. George, w George H. Bush used it to start war. In fact, uh, Michael, that is exactly what I thought of when I heard beheaded children. I, I thought of that. I don't think they went around beheading children. These are people under occupation, uh, and I don't think that they want to necessarily spread the same misery that they've been facing uh, through an occupation that I actually, in my head, it re I recall biblical stories of the Pharaoh, what he did to the children of Israel. Uh, uh, and I parallel this to that, like, you know, all those things that are described in the Bible that were done to the children of Israel, the Palestinians today are like facing that from a modern uh, Netanyahu or a, a Pharaonic Egypt uh, in, embodied in this state of Israel. Um, the other propaganda was the rapes. There's no evidence. They never provided any. I don't believe anything unless they provide evidence. And they have not provided any evidence. Going like the Yunnan plan going way, way back, you know, in, in which they're wanting to expand, um, you know, and that, that's something that's been happening, uh, you know, going into uh, West Bank and Gaza and yeah. But, but they're, they're, they're aiming to go also to expand, at least according to your article, into Syria and into uh, also into parts of North Africa. I'm wondering. Well, they have expanded, the, Michael. Yeah, they They've already have, annexed Golan Heights in Syria. They already occupy the Sheba farms still in Lebanon. They had a plan to annex a lot of Lebanon. It didn't work because the Lebanese resistance was so strong with Iranian support. Uh, 
they the view of the Israelis is not necessarily to physically occupy land, as you can see in Gaza. They Gaza officially and under technical and, and legal terms and in practice is occupied, but no Israeli army has been on Gazan territory. Uh, they, they control the airwaves, they control the, the borders, what is imported was exported, uh, the finances, they control the skies, they control the seas. Uh, so that's how they occupy Gaza still. There's still legally the occupational power who's responsible for the civilians. Israel is still under international law responsible for the civilians. Uh, a responsibility that is it has intentionally neglected. But in regards to expanding Israeli influence, they don't necessarily see this as physical territorial gains. They see this as, it does include that, but they see this as economic influence, which is why there is this normalization, the Abraham Accords. They see themselves as being the economic uh, uh, I would say uh, gendarme of the United States. Now, I want to also point out that the Yunon plan is not necessarily just about Israel. It's about Israel serving a great power's interest in the regions. So Israel would be the local uh, bully or the local policeman. I don't want to use the word police because they enforce the law. So maybe local bandit of uh, a great power like the United States. I have to also point this out since we're talking about the subjects. The Jewish people themselves are victims of the state of Israel. And what do I mean by this? The state of Israel thrives on uh, anti-Semiticism. It, 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 it thrives on this. And in the sense that when people dislike Jews or there's bad things happening to them, some might turn to Israel. Some might think the only place for the only place in the world we got to go is Israel. So it thrives on this and it gives it a raison d'etre. It, 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 it uses this to justify its existence and this colonialism. When in reality, specifically in, the, in that region of the world, anti-Semiticism in terms of uh, negative views towards Jews was not really a common thing. Uh, most Muslim Arabs and Christian Arabs, as well as Jewish Arabs, uh, and and other people, ethnic people of those three faiths, got along. Uh, Jews, Muslims, Christians predominantly lived together in peace. When they say they haven't lived together, that's ahistorical. It's not historically correct. Uh, so Israel thrives on these things, and, and it wants the region, that region of the world, to be redrawn in a Zionist image. And what do I mean by a Zionist image? It wants states that are homogenous and solely made for specific ethno-sectarian religious groups. So a Kurdish state or a Shiite Arab state or a Sunni Muslim Arab state. It wants that. And that's not how the world really is. People live together of different faiths and creeds, uh, uh, I mean, different creeds and, and uh, colors. And, and that's how that region really is. It's always been a mixed region. You can look at Lebanon, Orthodox Christians, Catholic, various Catholic Christians, uh, even Protestants living together with different types of Shiite Muslims, such as Alawites and Jafaris and uh, Sunni Muslims, and as well as the Rus. Palestine was just like this before the Israelis came. 
different Christians, uh, Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Muslims, both Shiite and Sunni, North had Shiites, as well as Druze and Jews, Palestinian Jews. Until this day, there are even Palestinian Jews still in the West Bank. They're called Samarans. They call them Samarans. So some, uh, the, these, the, this area was, was, was uh, uh, a place of coexistence. And the state of Israel, the experiment of Israel, tried to erase this and create a uh, more or less a model of a homogeneous state. Although Israel is not a homogeneous state in many ways, there, there are many cleavages there between different types of Jews in terms of where they originate from and in terms of different uh, uh, different sects of Judaism, as well as different ethnicities. Like, for example, there are Israeli citizens who are Palestinian. They call them Israeli Arabs. Some of them are Christian and many of them are Muslim, 20% roughly. They even have seats in the Knesset. Um, uh, the Yinon plan, though, however, uh, going back to it, sorry, I might have sidetracked a little. It, it, it wants to redraw the region in this model of Zionism in terms of just homogeneous states. And to do this will mean war and partition. Just think of what happened in India and Pakistan and the misery that came with it and the tensions between a fraternal people. Indians and Pakistanis are uh, more or less the same people. But until this day, there's animosity between them. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. What about the, the other states that are going to fight back? I mean, you have the, the, uh, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, you have Hamas, of course. And, and you know, there's also things that, that Palestinians could do in the West Bank. Uh, there's even the, the, you know, the topic of, of Iran being possible. So like a, a five-front war against Israel. Um, okay, that's a great Israelis subject you're bringing up. Uh, I, I, first of all, I, I, I have to be very frank. I have never considered uh, the Israelis to be this juggernaut militarily. I always thought it was an illusion. And myself being a former soldier, you know, as a, as a former serviceman in the military myself, I always looked at how they use. I, I mean, there. Of course, I always looked at generally a lot of things that they did in their military, and it was very questionable on how professional they were. So, I mean, I I don't think that this is a strong military uh, in many ways. And answering your question. They're very good at beating up civilians. You know, they're very good at going against countries that have civil wars and who have been downgraded and, you know, their military has been broken. They're very good at sucker shots like against Syria while it's there's internal fighting and the military's worn down. Going against Lebanon after a bloody civil war when everyone's divided. They're very, very good at bombing Iraq while it's at war with Iran. So they can do things like that and assassinations. But when it comes to an actual conventional war, I think they'll lose. Now, they always, uh, looking at what military historians talk about their success in like the Yom Kippur War, for example, you have to remember the Arab armies they fought at were also fought with were also fledgling armies. Those Arab armies were fledgling. They were not well organized. 
They were young. They were new. Those states also freshly became independent. And they were not as well armed in many cases. So the Israelis have used this propaganda and this image to make themselves look like this Goliath in the region, which I have never agreed with. And I want to make that clear. I've, I've always seen it as an illusion. And that's another point I make. The Israelis are very good at casting illusions. And for them, always their deterrent power was their most prized possession. And that's why they're good at making illusions as deterrents. If they fight against the Iranians, uh, I think that, the first of all, the Israelis won't fight against the Iranians. It, it will be the United States. The, that's why the U.S. Navy is there. That's why those Na U.S. Navy battle groups are there. So the United States ironically calls for constraint while it funnels weapons into that region to Israel, while it stops ceasefires, and while it's there to fight. That's some strange definition of constraint. Uh, the Iranians and the Americans are negotiating. There are negotiations going between them, um, as well as Hamas through Qatar. Uh, in fact, the Iranians even said there was talk about sending the Israeli captives to Iran through Turkish or Qatari interme uh, uh, intermediaries. So, yes, this could end up being a multi-front war. Now, if this becomes a multi-front war, it is a regional war that will escalate to a global war. No question about it. The Chinese and the Russians back the Iranians. Uh, there was an Iranian advisor who came to Beijing, a uh, government advisor, uh, two weeks ago. More or less, when I listened to him, he said, essentially, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So the conflict will escalate, but it's not because this is something that's going to happen in the Middle East because all these states there are at each other's throats. I think it's by design that the United States is trying to create a, a broader three-front conflict. I'm not going to use the word war yet. Between Russia, China, and Iran. They're they've already started a war in Eastern Europe using Ukraine. Now in Palestine, they're using uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis to create a front there. And, and the, in Chinese Taipei, which is a uh, basically more or less a rogue province of China, as Beijing sees it, uh, they're arming Taipei. And, and there's a connection. In fact, the funding that Mr. Biden is sending right now is for all three of these places. Maybe Israel has priority, but it's all three of them. There is a connection. The, the conflicts in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe will go to the, are, are being pushed in the Asia-Pacific region. And, and definitely the Chinese are cognizant about this. And the Chinese position against Israel on this has been uh, very assertive. And I, I think very fair in terms of international law. And definitely the Chinese public more or less are not supportive of Israel. In the Chinese public, if you go on, on uh, Weibo, TikTok, WeChat, if you look at all these, majority of Chinese public are against Israel. And the Israelis actually have agents trying to push their propaganda and win hearts and minds in the People's Republic of China. And it's not successful. The Chinese understand what's at stake. They understand that this is connected to a, a great power maneuvers. And... Um, at the end of the day, the United States is, this goes back to Washington. 
it's not a question of I what Tel Aviv is necessarily doing. Yeah, Magi, unfortunately, we're starting to run out of time. I wanted to, to, to basically give you a, a chance to you maybe remark on anything that you haven't uh, remarked on yet, or maybe emphasize the things that you have. Okay. That basically, you know, say in, in terms of this war, where you know there are citizens all over the place who are still determined to uh, who, who are are resisting, you know, and, and numbers like well, we haven't seen since the 20 years ago. So, what do you think you should say to the citizens to uh, to, to communicate the importance of the situation okay. and, and maybe things so, that you do to uh, stop it? I'm not anybody special to pontificate to other people on how to follow their moral compasses. But I do think the time is running out for a lot of innocent people. So I believe that if you have no, if, if you can do something to help, do it. If you can't do something positive to help, then at least speak about it. Speak out against that evil or negativity or uh, uh, darkness. And if you cannot do that and you're hate it in your heart, dislike it in your heart, what I have to say is I think time is running out for a lot of innocent people. Uh, there is a genocide, no question about it. The Israeli, when you listen to Israeli media and Israeli leaders, they are talking about genocide. Like the president of Israel said, this is a collective crime. All Palestinians are guilty. Hamas represents them. It's their government. They're all guilty. Uh, the Israeli defense minister called them human animals. And a few years ago, they said they would even do another Holocaust there a few years ago. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu invoked the Bible and a people that were erased in the Bible. So they are going to do this. And in fact, uh, in, Isra in Israel, there's a government document that has been circulated by Israeli media that calls for the ethnic cleansing or genocide in Palestine where all the Palestinians will be forced to go into the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt and never allowed to come back. Uh, they will never be allowed to come back. They'll be kicked off the land and forced to live in a tent city in the Sinai, kilometers away from the border with Gaza. And that document actually goes out of its way to tell them that they want to tell them that God punished them. That's what they'd like to tell them, that God punished the Palestinian people, and that's why they're there. This is actually an Israeli government document from the intelligence services that was put together. And um, uh, the final thing I have to say is that uh, I, I hope that peace prevails, but I think that in the end, this is going to hurt Israel and the United States. They will be the two biggest losers from this. Uh, that is my strong belief. This will actually backfire against Israel. They're actually committing political suicide. And you can see that the whole world is waking up uh, in this age of social media and technology and realizing what they're doing. And, and, and in, that, in that sense, there's a danger for the supporters of Israel who are trying to outlaw supporting Palestinians. So in Europe, in France and Germany, at the start, they were trying to ban pro rallies in support of Palestine. And then there are people Orwellianly trying to say if you support Palestinian rights and freedom, it means you support terrorism or Hamas. Hamas is not the Palestinian people, and the Palestinian people are not Hamas. Uh, but I also think Hamas is being misrepresented as well. I want to point that out. Uh, a lot of things you're hearing, you should double check. And uh, in much of the world, they are not considered a terrorist organization in a large part of the world. They're considered a resistance 
Um, whether you like their politics and their tactics and their ideology, they are considered a resistance group. So uh, those are some things I want to put out there. Uh, and I hope this fighting stops. But at the end, I, I, I think that we all need to speak out in whatever way we can to stop it. Well, Mahdi, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you again. I really enjoyed uh, your analysis, and uh, I always enjoy having you on the show. Thank you so much for being part of this uh, very important conversation. Thank you for having me. Uh, Mahdi Nazamroya is a sociologist. He's an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst, and he is a research associate at the Center for Research. On We've had a, a Canadian go out to the Middle East region uh, since October 7th. Dimitri Lascaris was visiting Lebanon at a time when Hezbollah was mentioned as another front uh, against Israel and as aggression has been increasing on Gaza. So we thought we should uh, get some thoughts from him about what's going on. He is an activist. He's a lawyer and a journalist and uh, was formerly a candidate for the leadership of the Green Party of Canada. Pleasure having you on again, Dimitri. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Now, just to, to give us a bit of a backdrop, could you talk about uh, what, before going there, if you've been to the region before and how that may have prepared you for what you were about to, to witness? Uh, actually, I went to Lebanon for the first time in March of this year. Uh, and I hired uh, a guide who uh, sometimes does work for Radio Canada. She's a Lebanese Canadian um, and a professional fixer as well as journalist. And uh, I uh, asked her to take me to the Shatila refugee camp uh, in southern Beirut and uh, to Damascus and uh, and also to uh, the southern border with Israel. So I did that in March for about 10 days. So that gave me um, a sense of the place, although obviously, you know, 10 days is not nearly enough to really understand a country. Um, mm. And then when uh, the October 7th attack happened in Israel and Israel responded with this ferocious, merciless violence, um, I wanted to get close to the conflict, as close as possible. I actually looked into going to Gaza. That was uh, not possible. Um, and I thought about going to Amman, uh, but uh, the Jordanian government at that time had just uh, placed severe restrictions on the ability of Jordanians, including Palestinian refugees, to uh, protest near the border of the West Bank. Uh, so I then decided to go to uh, Lebanon on very short notice. And uh, I'm happy to talk to you about what I saw there. Uh, but I basically revisited the places that I had been uh, in March with the same guide, and this time also with a driver from South Lebanon, uh, because getting into South Lebanon uh, was quite a challenge, given that there were regular daily exchanges of artillery. Well, I'm, I'm def definitely curious to hear about your trip, and, and particularly what was different uh, in uh, October as opposed to uh, March. Like, how, how different was it? Uh, but you, you could basically give us a, a quick uh, summary of, of everything you did there. Uh, well, I went when I went, I mean, very briefly, when I went in March, uh, 
I don't think anybody was imagining we'd find ourselves where we are today. Uh, the country was, people were mostly fixed, uh, preoccupied with the terrible economic crisis that has befallen Lebanon. Uh, you know, they have hyperinflation, half the population is in poverty. Uh, you know, the, the government uh, electricity provider only provides electricity for about two hours a day. So everybody who can afford a generator has a generator and this makes the, uh, the air extraordinarily polluted. Um, and that was really, uh, I think where people's heads were at when I went in March. Now it was, uh, of course they were continue to be very preoccupied with the economic crisis, but they have, I mean, the two emotions that I saw in our Lebanese, uh, you know, brothers and sisters were, uh, fear and anger. Uh, and depending upon who you talk to one or the other of those emotions was, uh, was, uh, predominant. Uh, the first day I went there, I, literally, as I got off the plane, I went straight to the U.S. Embassy because uh, I had heard uh, they, this was the day after um, the Israelis had bombed the uh, Al-Ila hospital in Gaza. And I do believe the evidence shows that they bombed it. Uh, and so Hezbollah had declared a national day of rage in Lebanon. And I, uh, I was told that a major protest was taking place at the embassy. So I went there directly from the airport and it was complete chaos. Uh, there were uh, running street battles between um, uh, men, uh, Palestinian solidarity activists. I think a lot of those people were Palestinian refugees. Uh, they were throwing rocks at uh, heavily armed Lebanese soldiers who were uh, using rubber bullets, a lot of tear gas, and occasionally throwing rocks back at the protesters. Wow. Uh, so I did a report on that. The next day I went to the Shatila refugee camp and uh, I, I had a one-hour interview with uh, the representative in the camp of the Democratic Front for the uh, Liberation of Palestine. I still have to uh, post that interview. I haven't had a chance to do that. Um, and then uh, accompanied him and other refugees on a protest. This one was peaceful from Shatila to a Palestinian cemetery in central Beirut. Uh, and then I went down to the border twice. Uh, and uh, on both occasions, you, you know, the signs of warfare were everywhere. I saw on one day uh, a village being shelled in the distance. We could hear explosions uh, throughout the day uh, in the distance. Uh, there were constant, there was a constant buzz of Israeli drones overhead. Uh, there were some gun, battle, gun battles. We didn't personally witness them, but they were in the general vicinity. And I spoke to people who were living in the border areas. Literally, you know, they can see Israel uh, from their homes and their businesses. And, uh, you know, we can get into that. But that was, uh, the, the, there, were, there were disparate reactions, shall we say, depending upon who I was speaking to. And I would sum it up this way. I mean, I didn't do any kind of large, you know, sample size uh Michael, so please don't take this as being any kind of scientific assessment of public opinion in South Lebanon. For sure. But the people, the people I spoke to who were uh, Christian Arabs, were very careful to about criticizing uh, one side or the other. Uh, they talked about the desire for peace. They didn't want war. They wanted negotiation. They wanted discussion. Uh, but the people I spoke to of a Muslim persuasion, and these were Shia Muslims, were very angry. Um, and uh, although they don't want war, they've seen war many times, and they were very clear about this, they don't think that there's any alternative but war, uh, because this is a matter of uh, human decency. Uh, if Hezbollah doesn't intervene, who will come to the rescue of the Palestinian people, particularly in Gaza? Uh, so those were the two sort of main 
themes that I heard in speaking to people there. There are people, uh, you know, uh, I, I just want to add that there are people I also spoke to who are not normally supporters of Hezbollah. They were very clear about this. But they also said, uh, if ever there was a moment when Hezbollah's existence was justified, this is it. Um, and something's got to be done. Uh, so that's that's the summary. And it was, um, I, 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 my overall sense of it, Michael, was that the Israelis, frankly, and I, you know, again, I, I could be wrong about this. I, I'm not, I don't have a hotline to Netanyahu, Netanyahu, but I had a sense that the, the Israeli military at the direction of the government is trying to provoke a, a large scale Hezbollah attack so that they can draw the United States into this fight. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had to guess as to what the thinking of Netanyahu is on the northern border, uh, that would be my best guess. Yeah. And could you just maybe say just a, a couple of words about uh, the, the interview that you uh, that you're putting together that with that uh, resistance uh, person there? Well, it was interesting, you know, uh, we, he, he of course, he talked about uh, the fact that he's never set foot in his homeland. He's been a refugee his entire life. He uh, started out in Syria uh and came to Lebanon, it escapes me why he came to Lebanon from Syria, but he said, interestingly, that uh, the Leban the Palestinian refugees are treated better in Syria than they are in Lebanon. Um, he said that, uh, that the, all armed factions uh, of the Palestinian resistance are united. This is not simply Hamas. Um, and he said, I myself am uh, a Marxist-Leninist, the organization I represent is Marxist-Leninist. I'm secular, uh, but we're all in this together, uh, and people need to stop viewing this as a as a war strictly between Hamas and uh, uh, Israel. This is a war between Israel and the Palestinian resistance. And uh, at the end of the interview, uh, I asked him, uh, you know, who, in his opinion, were the friends of the Palestinian people in the Middle East. And he was very reluctant to answer that question. And so I, I started I started ask, asking in a general way. And then I decided, you know, I'll be specific. And I named I rhymed off the Saudis, you know, the Jordanians, the Egyptians. Uh, he wasn't willing uh, to uh, he, he was careful not to criticize them. Uh, but he was certainly not prepared to say that they were friends of the Palestinian people. And then when I said, you know, um, Iran, um, and he, remember, he's a Marxist-Leninist. He was a, he's a Sunni Muslim, not a Shia. Uh, and uh, he said, yes, uh, the, Iran the Iranian government is a friend of the Palestinian people. Not in a kind of fanatical way. He just, you know, sort of matter-of-factly. And that was the only uh, government in the Middle East that I, he was prepared to say was a friend of the Palestinian people, which I found rather telling. A lot of people are concerned about uh, the Hezbollah in Lebanon joining Hamas in their resistance to uh, Israeli tactics. Do you see, based on what you've experienced, do you see such a cr crusade as, realistically as a possibility? Uh, I think that at this stage, um, there is undoubtedly going to be an escalation. And when I say at this stage, uh, I want to be clear what I mean by that. I mean, there's absolutely no indication that Israel is going to stop killing civilians. I mean, we're at a place where no major Western government even has the decency to uh, call for a ceasefire. And a ceasefire is not, as you know, Netanyahu characterizes it, any kind of a surrender. A ceasefire means you stop shooting for some defined period of time, 
to allow uh, humanitarian assistance to enter the Strip and for innocent civilians to be uh, given the necessities of life and whatever medical treatment they urgently need. That's what a ceasefire is. And we can't even get a major government to say, uh, please, please, Mr. Netanyahu, please agree to at least a short-term ceasefire. And Netanyahu just gave a speech, which notably was in English, wasn't in Hebrew. So he was addressing himself to the United States and other English-speaking countries in the West, I think. And he said unequivocally, there will be no ceasefire. That's a surrender to barbarism and terrorism. So, uh, and there's no indication that the pace at which Israel is bombing uh, Gaza is slowing down. It may even be uh, accelerating. Uh, and in those circumstances, I think we are destined to see an escalation because there will come a breaking point. There will come a point at which either uh, governments in the one or more governments in the Middle East, Turkey, Iran, uh, Syria, or a mil militant group such as Hezbollah take matters into their own hands because uh, they just can't stand watching this massacre any longer, or they will be forced to do it by pressure in the street. Um, and I just, again, I go back to what I said, my feeling about what was happening on the Israel-Lebanon border. I think that part of the reason, it's not the only reason, but part of the reason why Netanyahu's regime is, ex is resorting to this, this monstrous behavior, to, it would literally, no restraint whatsoever being imposed upon the Israeli military, um, is because he wants to provoke them. He wants, in my opinion, I, I, to put it in sort of crass metaphorical terms, he wants to cut off the head of the snake. And he believes that if, is, if, if, is, if Iran's government can be defeated, then all of these groups that Israel uh, confronts currently, that threaten Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, other uh, militant groups in the Middle East, will wither up and die. And so, and he, I think he's also keenly aware of the fact, and I, I, you listen to sober military experts, they'll tell you this, Israel, without the use of nuclear weapons, cannot defeat Iran. That's ridiculous. If you look at Israel's military and its capacity and where it's situated uh, relative to Iran, the size of Iran, the military capacity of Iran, only by means of a nuclear uh, uh, exchange would Israel be able to defeat Iran. So Israel needs uh, the United States in this fight and the way to get the United States into this fight is to provoke uh, a large-scale attack from Iran or an Iranian proxy. That's, I think, the game that's being played right now. So where I see this going, Michael, is we are heading to a major, major war in the Middle East. Yeah. So it is definitely going to expand or... I mean, I guess we should say, what what is the best case scenario that, that could be worked out here? And what's the worst case scenario that, uh, given what we know about the states involved and, and, and how this can be resolved? Well, there are several possible nonviolent scenarios that will get us to uh, a just outcome, uh, I think, or at least have the potential to do that. One of, the, one of them, and this is why I tell everybody in the West, everybody I speak to, what do we do now? People feel helpless. You've got to get out into the street and you have to protest like hell. And I mean, take, take your protest to a whole new level. And I see that happening. So one possible uh, outcome is that, you know, we, 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 we managed to mount and sustain sort of Vietnam era protests, militancy, militancy uh, of an unprecedented scale uh, during the last 30, 40 years, and force our governments to put pressure on Israel to stop killing, uh, you know, Palestinians en masse and to come to the table with a real 
proposal for a two-state solution or some kind of you know democratic result for the Palestinian people. That's one peaceful outcome. Another peaceful outcome is for the Gulf Arab states, and I, I'm less, uh, shall we say, optimistic about this given history, but I wouldn't rule this out, is that the Gulf Arab states say, we're cutting off your oil and gas unless you stop the Israelis. We've had enough. Uh, so that's another possible outcome. A third possible outcome is um, as the one I mentioned, that there is a large scale attack from one or more of Israel's enemies. And then we're going to be into a World War Three scenario in the Middle East, uh, because I think you really there's a high high risk that Russia and China, one or both of them will be drawn into this if there is a full scale attack on Iran. Um, and, uh, you know. I think those are only the only three alternatives, given the way things are currently heading. I don't see Israel. I don't think we're going back to the status quo. I don't think Israel is going to achieve its objectives. I think that's a pipe dream. It's it may kill a lot of people uh, inside and outside of Hamas. It may, uh, you know, uh, devastate Hamas for a period of time so that its ability to threaten Israel is greatly diminished for some period of time. But this isn't going away. And Israel has effectively tarnished its reputation to such a degree in the region and in the broader world uh, that I don't think people are going to tolerate a, a return to the status quo. And I, and I don't think Israel itself can engineer that, whatever public opinion is outside the West, because this whole notion of Israel's invincibility has been exploded. Uh, and this is going to have real dramatic consequences uh, for the maintenance of Israel's apartheid system going forward. Dimitri, I, I want to thank you for your work and, and your analysis. Um, I, we're going to be paying attention very closely to see how Lebanon and uh, possibly Syria and Iran may uh, uh, add an interesting mix to uh, flavor to this whole uh, exchange. But uh, I, I want to thank you for your work and uh, hopefully you'll uh, st stay tuned and uh, keep us posted as to uh, what may be on the horizon. Thank you so much. Take you care. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dimitri Lascaris, activist, lawyer, and journalist. That's it for the show. Next week, two book authors talk to us about mechanisms affecting U.S. and Canadian foreign policy. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.